Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. I'm a producer here at Vox. And if you can believe it, we are only three weeks away from the midterm election. Everywhere, people are talking about the House. The Republican Party is still projected to pick up the House majority, but it's by no means guaranteed. They're talking about the Senate. Republicans only need one seat in the Senate to regain control for the remainder of President Biden's term. They're talking about gubernatorial races. We are seeing an incredibly tight race when it comes to the race for governor here in Wisconsin. But there are more than politics on the ballot. There's policy, too. And they come in the form of ballot initiatives. The last of Colorado's Prohibition-era laws could fall. This November, every Arizona voter will have at least 11 different propositions to decide on. If approved, Question 3 would change two fundamental ways elections are conducted here in Nevada. This year, 37 states will be voting on nearly 140 measures, ranging from marijuana... South Dakotans will vote on recreational marijuana once again this November. ...to taxes. Proposition 30 would raise taxes on the wealthiest Californians in order to fund new climate projects. There are changes to state constitutions, veto referendums, and even ballot initiatives on how ballot initiatives work in the first place. Here to be our guide is Libby Nelson. She's the policy editor here at Vox. Hi, Libby. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on and explaining all of this to us. There is, as always, a lot going on. (laughs) So I guess to begin, how prolific are the ballot initiatives this time around? Are there more than usual? Are there less? So this is a pretty typical year. There's 137 ballot measures, which is pretty normal. And in fact, it's a little bit higher than 2020, but a little bit lower than most recent years prior to 2020. I think what varies a little bit from year to year is how interesting and how consequential some of those ballot measures might seem to people who live outside those states. Mm. So one thing we're seeing this year is a lot of measures on issues that have a lot of national importance and a lot of national valence. Mm. So how do you even begin to unpack all these? I mean, it's over 100. Where, Where do you even start? So if you're me, where you start is you make a Google Doc and you start sorting them by category. Um, because I think, you know, if you're a voter going to the ballot box, obviously the, the way to think about it is is by state. 
prior to actually going to vote, you can look up what your state is voting on. If we're looking at this from a national policy perspective, though, there are some really high-profile ballot measures dealing with abortion. Mm. There are a bunch of ballot measures dealing with marijuana legalization. And then there are a bunch of more like one-off or two or three-off ballot measures that are happening either across multiple states or on like different versions of a similar policy issue across different states. And then there are the ones that are just kind of unique um, and interesting or that have been perpetually on ballots Mm. but are only on like one state this year. So, for example – South Dakota is the only state this time around voting on whether to expand Medicaid, but that's been like a perpetual ballot measure over the last 12 years across a variety of states. I guess if we take a step back, how and when do we use ballot initiatives versus, you know, people elect lawmakers on the state level to enact laws? Like what? why are some laws voted on by voters and some are voted on by those representatives the voters voted on? Right. I think this is the most interesting thing, actually, about ballot measures, is that these are, like, the closest the U.S. has to direct democracy. So there's a few ways that a a policy measure can end up on the ballot. One is that the state legislature actually puts it there, and that's actually by far the most common. Hmm. There are some states where this is required. Um, It's most common with constitutional amendments, which a lot of these are. Then there are ballot measures that sort of bubble up from people getting signatures on petitions to get something on the ballot statewide. And then there are referenda that are just deciding whether or not to uphold a law that a state legislature has already passed. There are a few areas where this has, like, always been more common. So we've seen, for example, a lot of marijuana ballot measures over the last 10 or so years. We've seen um, a good number of Medicaid ballot measures over the last 10 or so years. Something that's interesting to me this year is there are some that are kind of more what you might previously have considered the province of a state legislature or things that are, especially in California, and this is not new, but things that are really quite complicated. And it's like, is asking the voters what they think should be done about regulating kidney dialysis clinics, like really the best way to, to get to the policy, to get to an optimal policy. I also wonder, do we know how lawmakers feel about these initiatives. I mean, what's sort of that relationship? Yeah, in some cases, um, there are definitely voters permitting things or allowing things that would not have passed the state legislature. That's something that comes up a lot. You know, states that didn't want to expand Medicaid to cover more people uh, because they have an overwhelmingly Republican legislature. When the question is put directly to often overwhelmingly Republican voters, um, it does fare better. So there's often a little bit of a disconnect there. What's interesting about ballot initiatives, right, is this tension. There's this idea that on the one hand, like, it allows things to get onto the agenda that politicians are maybe, for whatever reason, not ready to embrace. I mean, I think there's a reason that we've seen drug legalization proceed, at least at first, primarily through sort of popular voting rather than than through legislature. On the other hand, it's like, well, you know, what, what What are we electing legislators for if not to sort of figure out some of these more complicated policy questions? And then the last thing I'll say is that on this is that even if it's a fairly straightforward question, the language on the ballot itself is not always the most straightforward. Mm. Um, this came up a lot with the Kansas abortion amendment earlier this year where it was, like, genuinely difficult from the way that it was described to figure out what it was going to do. I do this for a living, and they are not always easy to parse. Um, And so on the one hand, it gives you a lot of direct control over policy in your state if you're from a state like California that has a lot of these. On the other hand, as you're saying, it makes it really difficult to be an informed voter because it's like not only do you need an opinion about state races and local races and national races, but you also need to, like, 
fully understand, you know, between one and 20-something, in some cases, different propositions that could affect policy directly. Is there a difference in the types of initiatives we see everyday citizens putting forward versus what we see lawmakers putting forward, or is it hard to tell? So I think there's there's sometimes a disconnect between the ones that get the most attention and the mm. ones that are the most common. So okay. when I started to look at this, it's like there are just every year a ton of tax changes. Um, but because they happen just at the state level, they don't always get a ton of attention. It's like, oh, should voters like impose a surtax on real estate for X purpose? And it's like, okay, it's, it's one of those that's like, that's actually really important. It's going to affect a lot of people, but it doesn't necessarily speak to this like big broad like social issue or political issue. So I think those if anything get certainly in the national media probably too little attention relative to how important they are and how many people have to actually decide yeah. on them. I mean tax law is very important but it's not the sexiest topic. Yeah, I mean and you know I'm just I'm just looking through these like if you're looking at this year's it's like the public service commission shall regulate certain private sewer systems in a given county and it's like there's oh. a lot of these oh, okay. so you know most of them are not should we legalize marijuana should we legalize sports betting should we do something about abortion it's like this is a pretty nitty gritty small decision but with you know a, a lot of import for people in a pretty limited uh geographical area all right next we get into the issues on the ballots across the country this year including abortion Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, Libby, before the break, we were talking about ballot initiatives 
And one that comes up over and over again this year is abortion. It's it's top of mind for so many voters right now, given that Roe versus Wade was recently overturned. Where are we seeing it show up on the ballot? So there are abortion or abortion-related ballot measures in several states, in California, in Michigan, in Vermont, in Kentucky. And then there's a Montana amendment that's related to abortion. They're not necessarily directly attempting to regulate it. Obviously, that's a pretty wide range of states in terms of how progressive they are, in terms of how supportive they're likely to be on abortion rights. The two that I think are really, really crucial to watch are Kentucky and Michigan. Mm. Kentucky is voting on a very similar amendment to the one Kansas voted on earlier this year, which was looking to establish whether or not there is a state constitutional right to Mm. an abortion or whether the state legislature can take steps to regulate or ban it. Um, Obviously, in Kansas, in early August, voters decided that, yes, as the state court had previously decided, there is a state protection on the right to have an abortion. So it's a very, very similar measure in Kentucky. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because in Kansas, you know, it was during a primary election. There were other things on the ballot, but that was really what this campaign was about. Mm. Um, In Kentucky, it'll be interesting to see if that's motivating people to the same extent as, you know, it being kind of almost on its own in the field in terms of, like, this is the thing you're going to the polls to vote on. The other one is Michigan, which is is pretty similar, but is about determining a constitutional right to reproductive freedom, which would include both abortion and contraception um, and other matters related to that. California and Vermont are kind of interesting because these are probably not states you're thinking are likely to, like, crack down on abortion rights. Um, But they are trying to really enshrine protections in the state constitution such that, you know, if something were to change in that state – That would be a protection that's a little more solid than just whatever the legislature is doing. So in California, they would add both abortion and contraception to the state constitution. And in Vermont, they would add a constitutional amendment around personal reproductive autonomy Mm. as a broader concept. So I don't think there's a lot of doubt about either of those passing. So it's really Kentucky and Michigan that are where a lot of the attention is right now. The Montana initiative in particular is kind of confusing to me. It states that it would, quote, require medical care to be provided to infants born alive after an induced labor, cesarean section, attempted abortion, or another method, end quote. Um, I'm not a doctor, but medically this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I would hope that if labor's been induced that, you know, medical care would be provided, but also an attempted abortion, I— I've I've never heard of a case where a fetus survived an abortion. I, uh, what are what are they trying to get at here? So the, the actual cases that we're dealing with a lot like this are really ex, you know extremely rare and often extremely tragic. Um, if you're talking about mm. induced labor, we're talking about often you know serious abnormalities or defects that likely would not lead to a child being able to survive um, outside the womb. There's a couple of aspects to this. One is yes, it is already illegal to kill someone who is alive. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and like infanticide is illegal. That's everywhere, including in Montana. Um, and so there's there's not really any need to pass additional measures on that. Part of the debate about this is, is among physicians um, saying that 
you know, would this require like pretty heroic life-saving measures in a situation where we're dealing with a stillborn baby or a baby that, you know, is is not going to survive and it's the choice between the parent being able to hold them for a little bit and trying to like mm. take, you know, take do everything that you can possibly do. Yeah. Um it's just really sad. It's no, a really yeah, it's, it's really a really sad, sad situation. These laws are already on the books in quite a few states. It ties in with the debate about abortion because really there's sort of an implication here where it's like all the time people are having abortions and they're resorting, you know, they're resulting in living babies and like we're not helping them and this is terrible. Like this that's really, really, really uncommon. It's simply not the case that there are lots and lots of cases where, like, boy, something really horrible is happening here and we've got to step in to prevent this. So it's more about, like, whether this is necessary as opposed to whether this is a backdoor route into, you know, into into other ways of um, regulating sort of the the decisions that happen between people and doctors at these really difficult moments. So it it sounds like we're seeing these mostly come up as constitutional amendments. Is that kind of where we're really seeing the abortion well, I guess is in legislation, the ballot initiatives. Yeah. So we're seeing these mostly as state constitutional amendments, um, which do almost always have to be decided on by the voters. That's one reason why we're seeing these on the ballot is that the legislature, you know, can and often has done um, since since June. State legislators have been able to do what they want on abortion unless there is a state, you know, a constitutional um, protection that would override what a legislature wants to do at any point. So that's why we're kind of seeing them focus there. Do we have a sense of how these votes are going to go? So I think there's a little bit of a caveat here that the the more local an election gets, mm. um, the less likely it is that a poll is going to be like ironclad accurate, as you know. Yeah, um, we, did, uh, we did learn that uh, polling is it, it can't it can't tell you the future. As yeah, hard and, as we try. Um, certainly, we saw this in Kansas. That was a wildly closely watched election, and I think there were like three polls on it total. But it looks in Michigan like the signs are pretty good. The the polls that have existed have found pretty strong support, like two-thirds support for a state constitutional amendment, which even with a pretty wide margin of error, you know, and a lot of response bias, that that still looks like a pretty solid um, outcome. Kentucky has just not been pulled very much. Mm, um, so it's really hard to say what's going to happen there. You know, even if it was, like, it's, it's a little bit hard to say whether or not that's actually going to come out the way that the poll says. So basically what people are looking at is, like, prior polling on how state residents feel about abortion, right. but is almost all pre-Dobbs. Um, mm, so it's, yeah. it's just like, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is we just, we don't have a really solid picture yet of how abortion is going to affect how people vote this yeah, fall. Yeah, I'm, I think when we think of voting a lot of times, we think of candidates sort of driving it. But I'm wondering if this abortion issue is going to drive people to the polls. I mean, do we know what we can learn from Kansas or is it just, I mean, one state is just not enough to know? I think one thing that you can definitely learn from Kansas is that it is possible for abortion rights to win in a state where it didn't seem likely or possible. Um, I'm actually from Kansas, so I have a lot of— I was born in Kansas. Oh, wait, I really were. Kansas City. Same. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're going to talk about barbecue after this. Yes, okay. we are. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, the idea that in, in Kansas City in the 90s at, like, you know, the height of a really radicalized anti-abortion movement there, the idea that 20 years, 30 years later, Kansas would, would go against a pretty strong regional trend and remain a place where people can seek and obtain abortion is you would not have guessed that was going to happen. Um, so, you know, I think one thing we have learned is it's possible for this stuff to win, um, and it doesn't always 
follow the conventional wisdom of what we know about ballot measures, which is that people tend to prefer the status quo. It's always hard to get a big change through. Um, anything could happen. Um, but I think that the Kentucky Amendment especially is going to be watched really closely because these Kentucky and Michigan are two states that are just kind of interesting politically. Like Michigan, you have a swing state that, you know, has a lot of white working class voters that obviously, you know, famously been a, a hot political battleground recently. Kentucky, you have a state that's very red. The question is, you know, is there something different in Kentucky's political culture from Kansas's political culture? Um, and I think that gets into, like, interesting gradations of how people, even on the right, like, might yeah. feel about this in a way that we maybe haven't had to explore before on a national level. So it'll be really interesting in those two states to, to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think this could introduce a lot of nuance when we think about voting and voters, mm -hmm. which is never a bad thing. Is <laughs> never a bad thing. Absolutely. I think the other thing we've seen that's that's interesting is this is just so new. Like, because Roe v. Wade existed, it just was not nearly so common for this to be something that you had to message to voters about. So a lot of pro-choice messaging over the years has been about making sure that you know, the base is still fired up, that people are donating to the organizations that are fighting for these rights in court. But it was really focused on, like, let's make sure that we're able to, through the courts, maintain these protections. Mm. This is the first time that it's like, yeah, what a, like, 50-year-old dude in Michigan personally thinks about abortion, especially if it's not one of those issues that, like, they'd ever given much thought to yeah. or that determined their vote. Um, Really, really, really matters. And so that's a really big shift in, like, how on the political side we think about and talk about abortion as, a, as, a, as an issue in the United States. I, and I think another factor to get into is abortion is not the only ballot initiatives mm -hmm. coming up. There are so many. And, and one in particular that I think is interesting is sports betting. What is going on with that <laughs> and where are we seeing it? What's happening with sports betting? What is happening with sports betting? Um, so what we're seeing this year, the big one is – once again, in California, which, yes, California, just a really, really big ballot initiative state. Yeah, uh, just yeah. the ballots in California are so long because of all of these initiatives. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Um, so we're talking about Proposition 26 and Proposition 27. Okay, okay. The, you may notice there are two of them, which is one reason why this is so confusing. Yeah, yeah. Like, tell me more about this. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, writ large, California is debating whether to legalize sports betting this year. There are a couple of questions about, like, how they should do this. Should they legalize online sports betting? Should they legalize sports betting in person? Mm. Um, there's a lot kind of going on here about where the where the proceeds would go. The online sports betting would send some of them to the Native American tribes that have traditionally operated gaming and gambling in the states, but also send some of the proceeds to a fund to combat homelessness, which is obviously a huge issue in California. Yeah, yeah. The other uh, proposition would only legalize sports betting in person. So you you could do it, but you would have to be at a racetrack or at a casino or somewhere where you can like bet on things normally, not just on your phone. This has been, perhaps not surprisingly, because there's a lot of money at stake, just an incredibly expensive race. Wow. Um, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners in California who could confirm this, but like <laughs> my impression from the other side of the country is it's just been like nonstop ads on this um, for a long time. It's it's outstripping all of the other ballot measures in terms of the amount spent by like a factor of several. Wow, that's it sounds like there's a lot of money going into this. Yeah, because there's a lot of money at stake, right? Like it's a huge state. Sports betting is a, a huge deal, especially if we're talking about people being able to do it on their phones. And one of the questions is, you know, as soon as you're opening this up to private companies that, you know, you can just like download the app and log in, 
under the terms of the proposition, they would have to have an agreement with a tribe that operates gaming or um, casinos in California. But obviously, like, a lot of the money is going to end up going to the, the corporation yeah, that runs I'm interested it. Yeah, I'm interested in how that's going to impact those tribes. Is is there a conversation happening about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest um, groups in opposition to the online sports betting proposition is an uh, association of California tribes because this is obviously they not only have they um, had this as a major revenue source, they have, you know, been the stewards of, of gaming and gambling in the state. And yeah. while they would have to nominally be involved in order for online sports betting to go through, that's really, really different. And that's been a, a pretty big flashpoint. I kind of assumed that these would, would pass fairly easily because we've certainly seen a lot of legalization of, of sports betting and mobile yeah. sports betting over the last couple of years. That's not actually the case. They may both be in trouble. Um, oh. And the polling, the polling on the online measure is is dreadful. Um, really? Oh, yeah. I, that's so, I don't know why that's surprising to it's me, surprised, but it is. It surprised me too. Um, it surprised me too, because I think be, being on the East Coast, like, this is legal in New York. You're you're served a lot of ads for it. Oh, um, I see Jamie Foxx telling me to do MGM betting every time I turn on a football game. Yeah, a win feels good, but you know what feels better? A bet MGM win. MGM MGM gambling, by the way, perhaps unsurprisingly, one of the absolute top donors to the oh, California legalization campaign. To no yeah. One. <laughs> yeah, 35 states actually have have legalized sports betting, um, and five of them did so through a ballot measure. So I think that's why I was a little a little surprised that California looks like it might actually stand athwart this trend and, and not go along with it. The other thing is because there are two propositions, like you could sort of see all kinds of potential outcomes. Like there's a world where they both pass and they go from no sports betting at all to like sports betting anywhere for any reason. Um, it seems more likely of the two that the in-person one is the one that's going to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but neither of them are doing like particularly well. We're also seeing two very different labor ballot initiatives in Illinois and Tennessee. What's going on in those states? So what we're seeing there is two states that are geographically, you know, fairly close to one another, but are pointing in really, really different directions on the role of labor in the future of the labor movement. So Illinois is looking to enshrine the right to collectively bargain into its constitution. What that would provide is a protection from the dynamic you often get basically at every level, where like one party comes into power, it votes on something. Two years later, somebody comes into power, they vote it out. Two years later, somebody else comes back into power, they vote it in again. And so it would a constitutional amendment because it requires going to the voters, because it requires, you know, quite a bit of support. It's just a little bit more of a durable protection for, you know, a bedrock labor bargaining rights. Illinois would be the first state to actually ban a right-to-work law in the state. So it's been rejected at the state level before when it's been put before the voters. But like actually writing into the Constitution, if you are represented by a union, you have to pay those union dues. Uh, Tennessee is the other way around. They are going to try to codify right-to-work, which is the idea that you cannot be compelled to pay dues to the union that represents you. This is much more common. 27 states have right-to-work laws, including Tennessee. But once again, this is about enshrining it in the Constitution and sort of trying to do something that's a little more durable than a law that can get passed or thrown out when another party comes into power. So basically, we've got one state that is like committing itself extremely strongly to collective bargaining, to the right of people to be represented by a union and to the right of the union to collect dues from everyone it represents within the organization and the other state going the opposite way. Um, and we're just going to see, you know, how how one or both of those play out. 
Yeah, I'm 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 curious what this says about the state of labor in the US. I think now more than ever we hear about people unionizing, but also, you know, we also hear how companies are really stamping that out. I mean, what does this say kind of about the state of workers right now? This is an interesting time for these measures to be voted on because, as you say, we've seen a lot of energy. We've seen a lot of discussion around unionization. I think in most cases that's been because it's about who is unionizing. We're seeing industries um, and, and employees who haven't previously been represented getting more involved with unionization, trying for more collective bargaining, rather than like a massive groundswell of union membership across the United States. Mm. Um, You know, we've seen union membership falling for a couple of generations. And while there is an uptick in interest and energy so far, we're not seeing it like start to shoot back up. But at the same time, we definitely are at a different cultural moment on unions than we were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It's interesting to try to decipher to what degree these are these ballot initiatives are a response to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, passing and unpassing right-to-work laws has been a pretty consistent feature of, of politics, particularly in the South, where it's, it's much, much less common um, to have union-friendly legislation. At the same time, you know, Illinois is, is looking at this because it's an issue that's ping-ponged back and forth. So it's hard to say if it's a direct response, but it is going to be kind of another data point on the future of labor um, in the United States and, and where it might go from here. After the break, the ballot initiatives about ballot initiatives. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Libby, we are back, and I want to get kind of meta for a moment. In some places, ballot initiatives themselves are on the ballot. What are we seeing in regards to that? 
we've gotten to the point where we've got the ballot measures about the ballot measures, <laughs> um, which in some cases are about limiting how much voters are able to do. Mm. Um, so there are, there are some ballot measures that are just meant to create new thresholds for what it means for an initiative to pass, more processes for it, where it could be overridden. So there are four states that are looking at ballot measures to change how ballot measures work. One that would create a – in Arizona, um, there are three alone, one that could allow the legislature to repeal it if a Supreme Court strikes it down, one that would require 60 percent threshold for tax-related ballot measures, which, oh, interesting. as we've said, if we've discussed, we're not really spending a lot of time talking about here, but are, in fact, really important, and one that would create a single subject rule for ballot initiatives. So um, basically, it has to be about one thing. Oh, do people try to be like, I'm going to cram it all I'm, in there. We're, it, we're doing it. Yeah. We're doing it all. <laughs> Apparently, yes. Um, there are 16 states with single subject rules among the 26 that have some kind of ballot initiative process. So this, I guess this is like a something they're trying to foresee and head off. And then in, in Colorado, there is a proposal about ballot language on income tax-related initiatives, which on the one hand seems worthwhile and on the other hand really feels like the ultimate like – do we need to ask voters about, like, can the legislator not fix this on its own? Um, and and pr- probably not. You know, there's a reason this stuff goes to voters. Um, but it's that's one of those where it's like, boy, is this worth, you know, my time as a voter to, to figure out and, and vote upon regulating, you know, the, the way that you write future ballot initiatives? So it sounds like the overall trend we're kind of seeing is the idea of ballot initiatives getting a little weakened rather than strengthened. Yeah, we're not seeing – these are definitely about um, reining in what can be done through ballot measure. Oh, that's interesting. So are there particular – is there a particular impetus for these initiatives or – and are voters saying like, ooh, we got a little too much power. Let's stop this. (laughs) I've had enough of this long ballot. I think the I think the important thing to the sort of important context here is there is just an absolute ton of state to state variation on ballot measures of what you can do of how much you're expected to vote on you know there might be places where you're doing maybe one a year and it's about you know a, a slight change to real estate taxes and then there's California where it's like here are 10 to 40 specific policy measures that we need voters to weigh in on every time and kind of everything in between. There's a good number of states that don't do these at all um, or that don't have the initiative process where voters can just put something on the ballot and then vote on it. So earlier this year, there already was a ballot measure about ballot measures in South Dakota that would have required a 60 percent threshold for ballot measures that increase taxes or fees. This was rejected, so the voters are in favor of not needing a super high threshold for the voters to approve things. Well, hey. But it is interesting to me that that's in South Dakota where we see just a lot of interesting direct democracy stuff. Um, This is one, by the way, that was referred by the legislature. So there definitely Mm. is a little bit of a pushback and an interest in reclaiming some power. That's so fascinating. That's that's a fun little rivalry we got going on. So California's ballots are so notoriously long. I have friends and family in California, and when they get their mail-in ballots, they'll just, like, call me and just be like, this is the longest thing I have ever done in my life. Is there a trend, like maybe an uptick? Are we going to see more states other than California with those long ballots? As far as, you know, the overall trend, we're not seeing a ton of either opening up or like total shutting down. So I think it's likely that California and their very, very long ballots are going to remain pretty unique. I also think of other states were to seem to be going that way. Um, The California direct democracy experiment is is pretty mixed. You know, there's a lot of... um, 
there's always interesting stuff that comes out of this. There's some policy that people like a lot that comes out of this. There's also been um, some things that have really hamstrung the legislature's ability to work on different um, to work on different issues. And so I think that you know if there were to be a real push, um, there would be some critical looking at okay, so what what can we learn from what's gone on there and and what we know about people weighing in. I think that the election reforms we're seeing um, are more about things like ranked choice voting mm. than about, you know, expanding the amount of direct democracy. So it's more about thinking through alternatives to our current system of running elections um, to maybe provide better representation, give smaller parties more of a shot, and think about what that would look like as opposed to um, rethinking, like, entirely, like, are we making policy the right way? So it's more about fixing representative democracy as opposed to imposing a lot more direct democracy. And that's so interesting, too, because I feel like when it comes to policy, California is, I mean, because it's huge. I mean, I think economy-wise— in the world, it's just right behind France. And so, you <laughs> yeah, know, that's yeah. the reason cars are the way they are and produce is the way it is because California is setting this trend. Yeah, and and it's it's such a big market. It's also, though, when it comes to ballot initiatives, it's a very weird state. Um, California does a lot more direct democracy than just about anywhere else. It's caused some problems in the state because sometimes there are ballot measures that say the legislature can't legislate on something. It can only be decided via ballot measure. It makes it very interesting from the, the perspective of policy journalists who don't live there. I think as a voter, <laughs> it can really be incredibly uh, an incredibly frustrating experience. And certainly in terms of the variety of policy that comes out, I mean, I look at some of these and I'm like, usually there's like a step after the legislature passes something that, yeah. where you sort of figure out how this is going to go into effect. Kelsey Piper wrote a, a great piece for Vox in 2020 about her experience as a very, very informed voter of just like wading through the ballot initiatives and, and really got stuck on the kidney dialysis clinic regulation ones in particular. And I get that because that's the kind of thing that wouldn't even necessarily always be decided at the legislative level. Yeah. Like that would often be sort of the, the legislature would pass a law saying like there should be some regulations um, and then sort of hand it off to an agency that specializes in that. And it's exciting on the one hand and on the other hand, like I find this overwhelming yeah. and I love healthcare policy. Yeah, it's this thing of, you know – direct democracy, this idea. And I and I think a lot of voters relate to this idea of, oh, I elected this person, but they are not doing the things that I wanted them to do. Oh, great. I get to vote on these things. But it's it's complicated and it's hard. Yeah. To give another example out of California, I think just to give an idea of how complicated this is, there is a proposal to tax income above $2 million to fund zero emissions vehicles and wildlife prevention, which sounds nice, you know, but it's what I have heard from people who are, who you know, who study this and are working on this is like, this is actually a pretty complicated proposition. I'm mm. like, is this the best way to encourage this? Is this the best use of that money? Is the money going to go the right places? And it's like, when you get down to that, like, granular line item, nitty-gritty detail, you do get to a point where it's like, on the one hand, it's great to have a mechanism to try to actually reflect the preferences of the voters beyond just, like, electing a person and hoping for the best. Yeah. Frankly, particularly in a state like California, which is really – has a lot of one-party dominance where it's like – what you believe underneath the label of being a Democrat really matters there in a way that, you know, in a very tight state, you might not get quite so many like, well, are you this kind of Democrat? Or are you that kind yeah. of Democrat? Um, so I see the appeal very strongly. At the same time, it's like, man, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right way to yeah. do this. And it's just, you know, we've talked about all these different initiatives. Are these one-offs or are they reflective of policy in our country right now? 
I think they're. I think this is what's interesting about them. I think they're absolutely not one-offs. You know, to any to to some degree, obviously, you can look at almost any ballot initiative and say, okay, well, like the the quirkiness of that particular state or the quirkiness of this year is going to be a factor because every state's unique. But you know. 15, 20 years ago, the idea that, like, not only would we be seeing a lot of marijuana legalization on the ballot, but that it would be, like, so commonplace and straightforward because so many places have already voted on something like this that we wouldn't even be spending a lot of time talking about it would have been really wild. Like, that's absolutely a statement where we are in our our cultural moment. Um, Abortion is the most obvious one here. Like, it's like, well, there's the most ballot measures ever. And it's like, well, yeah, because, (laughs) you know, there's no longer a a bedrock Supreme Court protection that really limits what states um, and voters can do on this issue. Like, all of a sudden, the field is wide open to legislate on abortion kind of however a state wants to. Um, So, of course, this is is definitely open. These are also issues that that don't always get tackled, you know, at the at the congressional level, at the state and local level. I think marijuana is the most interesting example of this, where this is a pretty popular issue that was embraced by voters long before it was embraced by by most lawmakers, and where the momentum on the issue has still been largely on the side of, of people going to the polls and, and voting directly on it. You know, I think how much a given issue is, quote unquote, like a voter initiative issue as opposed to a legislative issue, those lines can blur a little bit. Um, it's really, it's very interesting to me, for example, that the the biggest vehicle for expanding healthcare to a large numbers of people in this country over the last few years has been voters in red states basically overriding their legislature yeah. and saying, yes, we do want Medicaid to cover working age people without dependents who wouldn't qualify for the program under the prior rules. Um, that's not something that has historically been thought of as a like direct democracy kind of issue. Um, and then there's sort of the fall and rise of, of other kinds. We used to see more climate ballot measures than we're seeing this oh, year. Oh, that is very interesting. Um, I think there's a few, you know, there's there's a couple of, of ways you can interpret what happened here, but often they did not fare particularly well. Um, and so I think climate advocates have decided to sort of pursue other avenues. So this is also about like What's the best avenue to pursue change? You know, marijuana has obviously been more successful making that case directly to the voters. I think it's possible that we see something like that with abortion. I think if these – certainly if an abortion rights ballot measure succeeds in Kentucky, that's not going to be the last time we see something like that um, because there's going to – you know, there's going to be some evidence that even in states that we don't think of as as progressive or where people are necessarily particularly friendly to abortion rights, that you can – win, you know, in a way that you might not be able to in the legislature. Does this signal a disconnect between who voters are electing and the policies they actually want? Like, It's just so fascinating that state legislatures are becoming more and more red across the country. And of course, I think there's an argument to be made that a lot of that is because of gerrymandering. You know, it's not necessarily an accident, but also being more extreme is what helps get you through the primaries and get you voted in. But at the same time, it seems like policy-wise, things aren't lining up. I'm, and, and maybe that's existential, but what is up with that disconnect? No, I think it's really interesting. I think that really gets at why I find ballot initiatives fascinating, not just because, like, yes, it's, it's direct policymaking in a way, and at the state level, in a way that isn't always... Um, apparent at the national level. Like what's happening in state legislatures day to day is is super, super important. But obviously the legislative process is lengthy. It can be hard to follow. And this is a like, you can show a map of what everybody voted on. And it's like, oh, I think it says a lot, not just about preferences, but about what issues legislatures are and aren't willing mm-hmm. to touch. 
I think, you know, marijuana especially is fascinating in this regard. It really, really took off. It's not that no legislatures have voted on this, but this took off kind of through the popular vote. And yeah, I think it is a way to sort of get at the disconnect. I will say, you know, it's it's possible to go too far with this. Oh, like, legislators will never vote on progressive policy, but if you put the questions directly to people, they will. Um, a lot of times they don't. A yeah. lot of ballot measures fail. Yeah. A lot of ballot measures that I people mean, get excited about uh, was fail. was it Prop 8 that was gay marriage in California yeah, that failed? That's yeah. the, well, that's the, you know, that's the other thing is um, once you start opening up all kinds of things for people to vote on, it's like, oh, okay, um, you're, you know, you're bound by the rights, the, the, the views of the majority, whatever they ultimately vote on. Outside of some of these specific issues we've been talking about, there is some research that finds that just changing anything tends to be a really uphill battle with voters um, if people get confused, which is very, very easy to do with these. There's a, a pretty strong bias toward the status quo. At the same time, you know, there are obviously things that are popular that state legislators just don't want to do. You know, that um, Medicaid is really interesting here. Marijuana is really interesting here. I think we could see abortion joining that list. And so I think it it, it definitely reflects a disconnect, but – it can also, you know, there, it can also tell us something about the type of issue where that disconnect exists. And what does that say about the blind spots um, and the priorities of elected representatives versus the people that they're they're elected to represent? All right, Libby, thank you so much for walking us through at least some of these ballot, these many, many ballot initiatives. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. If you want to find your state's ballot initiatives, you can find a link in our show notes. Thank you to Libby Nelson for joining me today. She's also our editorial advisor. Our producer and engineer is Sophie Lalonde, and our deputy editorial director is A.M. Hall. I'm your host, Jonquilyn Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Yeah, I have friends from the Carolinas who are like— Oh, no, God. Oh, but here's my thing. If you are like, I would like barbecue sauce, they are going to give you Kansas City-style barbecue yep. sauce. Yep, yep. And in Carolina, they're going to give you vinegar. Exactly. Like, no one wants your mustard. No one wants your vinegar. <laughs> like, people want a sweet tomato base. The reason Kansas City is also so good is because because of the train ran, like, the way so many meat markets. Yes, yeah. So you get your turkey, you get your, like, burnt— We invented burnt, burnt, we invented burnt ends. ends. We, we invented, invented burnt ends. So the barbecue is good. The barbecue is great.